Well, hello there. How are we? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. I'm your host, Nikki, and guys, I'm going to try my bestest to get through today's episode. Um, the original plan got scratched um, when I found out about Sidney Poitier. Tragic loss in the film community for us all. Um, prolific actor, um, black trailblazer, um, trailblazer in general in the world of film. Uh, so what a tragic loss that was. Um, I was queued up to do To Serve With Love. And then on Monday morning, I found out that a friend and a listener of the show, Peter Horan, had uh, transitioned from this timeline likely to a better one. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about meeting Peter, the short time that I knew him, and why I wanted to do this episode for him today. Um, I met Peter in September, I think. Um, my friend Hillary invited me to Sunset Park. I'm in New York. Um, she invited me to Sunset Park for a going away party um, for a couple of friends that were moving to Washington. Um, I hadn't really been out much since my breakup, so sure, I'll hang out with people I don't know just to hang out. It's fine. And if they smoke, they got to be cool, right? Um, so she's part of a huge uh, biking community. So a lot of people there bike super heavy. I do not bike at all. Um, so some of the people there weren't really interested in talking, um, were kind of off in their own little circles. But I think I met Peter within the first 10 minutes of being there. That first day, we talked about like very random stuff, music that came on the playlist, dogs, We'd, uh, we played a game and realized we had a similar sense of humor. Um, and I found out he was a Scorpio, which made complete sense because we know our own. Um, so a few weeks later, uh, Hillary invited me to a pumpkin smashing party that was going to be at his home, Peter's home. And he lived hella close to me. And the people that they hung out with always seemed to be a vibe, at least. So sure, I'll go. He was so welcoming warm, offered me a hug when I came in the house, even offered me um, uh, some alcohol and, you know, some green to roll if I didn't want to use my own. True gentleman. Um, he also had these, a box of cinnamon lollipops that I was way too hyped about when I saw because um, I love cinnamon candy. So he gave me the box and I still have most of that box. There were so many lollipops in there. Um, so I still have that box sitting on the table. So why this movie for Peter, Nikki? What what does he have to do with The Wicker Man? Because you've probably seen the title, right? Well, Peter also threw a Halloween party. He, uh, when I came in, uh, he had on a tweed blazer with a red pocket handkerchief, a yellow turtleneck, dark pants, dark shoes, hair slicked back. I walked right up to this man, me, a person who has a vintage movie podcast and asked if he was Ron Burgundy. He didn't even have a mustache, but I saw that turtleneck and the jacket and I asked if he was Ron Burgundy and he laughed very warmly, like threw his head back and he was like, no, um, I don't know if you know The Wicker Man, but I'm Lord Summer Isle at the end of The Wicker Man. First off, you know The Wicker Man? What? 
Second of all, your costume is referencing like the 1973 Wicker Man, like not like the Nicolas Cage, the bees one that everyone knows, but like the cool Wicker Man. Sorry, sorry, Nick Cage, but yeah, I'm sorry. So like all podcasters do, I quickly spat out, well, I have an old movie podcast. And he took out his phone, followed the podcast immediately. And then he said, I'm following you. So now you got to do the Wicker Man. And um, I didn't get to see him after Halloween. Um, I kept up with him mostly on social. He sent me messages supporting the pod, um, talking about episodes that I did. Um, People that I've known my whole life haven't said anything to me about the podcast. And this guy that I just met a couple months ago was all in. Um, You know... um, John Mayer said something recently about Bob Saget and uh, rest in peace to Bob Saget as well. We're we're losing so many good people lately. Um, But John Mayer said something recently about Bob Saget that I think kind of applies to Peter too. He said that Bob was so special to so many people that he felt like some people were afraid to say how they felt about him because they didn't want to step in front of anyone who may have had a closer relationship with him or a stronger connection with him because he made everyone feel so special. So it was always possible that someone was closer to his heart, you know? And I know that so many people that Peter rode with or um, spent time with are missing his light, his energy, probably much more than I, you know? Um, I also know that I wish I could have known him longer. I wish I could have talked to him more about old movies that he liked or Jethro Tull and salt and vinegar pistachios. I wish that I knew that time was so limited for all of us. And sometimes uh, a sunny smile can stay with you well past sunset. Um, um, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like he's probably hanging out with Phil Hartman right now. They seem like they'd be a good pair of buddies, you know, or even Bob Saget. Like, can you like that, that trio of people, Bob Saget, Phil Hartman and Peter Horan, they would make a cool last trio, man. Um, Anyhow, you were too good for this world, Peter. I just wish uh, we could have had you to brighten up the place for just a little longer, especially when times are so dark. Rest well, Peter Horn. And so, in his honor, I present to you, directed by Robin Hardy, Anthony Schaefer's The Wicker Man. Now, this was adapted from a book called Ritual, and this book and this movie was inspired by an engraving called The Wicker Image in Britannia Antiqua Illustrata by Eilat Sams in 1676. But some people kind of doubt the existence of this Wicker Man thing, um, saying that it was uh, just Roman propaganda that was brought about by Romans like Julius Caesar. 
Now, this 1973 version is highly regarded among movie fans, some saying that it's like the Citizen Kane of horror movies, heavily relying on the ending, but also having a great story that feels much lighter than it actually is, but it stays with you afterwards. Now, we'll definitely talk a little bit about some of the themes at the end or one specific theme. The music is all by uh, Paul Giovanni and has a very Celtic feel to it. Um, this takes place in what would be the Scottish Highlands, and it feels very Scottish and Highland-like, if that makes sense. Um, some of the cast that is in the film, you know, we usually go through the mains, um, but I do want to go through quite a few people here because the cast is um, just great. Um, we've got Edward Woodward as uh, Sergeant Neil Howie, uh, Christopher Lee as Lord Summer Isle, Britt Eklund as Willow McGregor. Um, Annie Ross actually does her singing voice, and we'll talk about that as well. Um, Leslie Mackey as Daisy. Uh, Diane Salento as Miss Rose. Ingrid Pitt as the librarian. Lindsay Kemp as Alder McGregor, um, who's the barman and the landlord. Um, Russell Waters as the harbor master. Aubrey Morris as the gardener and the grave digger. And um, also Irene Sunter as Maine Morrison. There's a host of other people in this film, but everyone who's in this film plays such a great role and really makes you feel like you are in this whimsical summer isle place. Um, so now that we have our players, we can press play. Um, this is a British Lion production. This is where we start. Um, and then we get a thank you note. The producer would like to thank the Lord Summer Isle and the people of his island off the west coast of Scotland for this privileged insight into their religious practices and for their generous cooperation in the making of this film. Beautiful. This island is not real. And these people are not real. Lord Summer Isle is not real. I'm not sure if maybe they were going to try to pass this off as a documentary and decided to not at the last minute, or if that was just like a little nod to like, oh, like we want this to seem, we want people to question whether this is real or not. Um, I know they were making a lot of like these weird um, documentaries at that point that sort of felt real, but weren't real. They were starting to delve into that. So maybe he wanted to give that kind of feel, but this is clearly a fictional film and it comes off as a fictional film from the beginning. We fade in on a plane flying from the mainland over to Summer Isle. We get a beautiful chorus of women singing and the song then switches to Corn Rigs Are Bonnie, um, sung by Magnet. Uh, the lyrics to this song were written in the 1700s, but the arrangement and the music were written special for this film. So this is like a very old sort of poem. The shots are the Scottish Highlands, the Scotland Highlands, which I actually had the privilege of seeing in person in my teens as a student ambassador um, when I went and we did a tour of the British Isles. Beautiful hillsides, lush plant life, sheep, flowers, all gorgeous. And this is the view that we get during our credits. So the plane lands in the water and our pilot, Sergeant Howie, um, has called to the shore for a dinghy. The harbor master comes out with a full crew of like nine older dudes and asks if he's lost as the island, Summer Isle, is private property and anyone that lands there needs written consent. 
However, Sergeant Howie is, of course, an officer of the law and can bypass this. Uh, you see, he's come to investigate the disappearance of a girl, Rowan Morrison. He received this anonymous letter requesting assistance, so here he is. And he is irritated about having to answer all these questions because he thinks that his uniform should speak for itself and mean something to these people on this private island. Anyway, they go get him and bring him on shore in the dinghy. He tells them that he's looking for this girl and passes the photo to the harbor master. The harbor master passes it around and one by one, all the gentlemen say they've never seen this girl. You know her, Kenny? Nope. She don't belong here at all. Do she, Johnny? Nope. Can't say we know her. Nope. We don't know her. Now, the letter says that May Morrison's 12-year-old daughter, Rowan, has not been seen for many, many months. Well, they have no idea who Rowan is, but hey, yeah, we know May. Yeah, she's she runs the post office. It's May Morrison's post office. But I'm telling you, that's not May's daughter, though. Well, who is she? And they all just stand there. Ain't nobody saying nothing. So Howie goes walking through the city to May Morrison's post office. The people in the town are watching from their windows. This is a tight-knit island. Everyone knows everyone, and they definitely know a stranger, and they definitely know a stranger walking around in a uniform. So the post office is adorned inside with all these sweets, treats, fun stuff, and Mae Morrison is as sweet as the candies she sells. She's like a middle-aged mother, but just sweet as pie. Sergeant Howie comes in to inquire about her missing daughter, and when he shows the picture, she kind of giggles and tells him, that's not my daughter at all. May introduces Howie to her nine-year-old daughter, Myrtle, who's working on a drawing. He sits down next to her to inquire about Rowan. And she says, yeah, I know Rowan. She's out in the fields. It's where she is all day. And he says, oh, well, will she be coming back for tea? Hares don't drink tea. Rowan's a hare, not a person, a rabbit. So Myrtle is a dead lead. Policeman heads to the pub to find lodging for the night. As he walks in, the music completely halts. All the joy is pretty much sucked out of the room as soon as the police show up, which is not any different than any other time, right? He approaches the barman and asks if he's the landlord. Barman introduced himself as Alder McGregor. Howie will definitely not make it back over to the mainland tonight, so he just wants to know if he can get a room and some supper. So Alder says that he can definitely accommodate and says that his daughter, Willow, will show him to his room. Willow is 70s fine, but like also today fine. Like, I mean, there aren't really many women in the scene anyway, just mostly a bunch of scruffy men. So, so her being there obviously brightens it up. But this beautiful blonde with big eyes and like sort of shapely comes out. She just steals the show. Well, she goes to grab the keys, and the men begin to serenade her with a song called The Landlord's Daughter. And she giggles and sort of dances suggestively with one of the men, and it's all lively good fun. And I'm going to read the lyrics because I'm not going to sing the song, but I do want you guys to know what the lyrics are. 
Much has been said of the strumpets of yore, of wenches and body house queens by the score, but I sing of the baggage that we all adore, the landlord's daughter. You'll never love another, although she's not the kind of girl to take home to your mother, the landlord's daughter. Her ale, it is lovely and strong to the taste. It is brewed with discretion and never with haste. You can have all you like if you swear not to waste the landlord's daughter. And when her name is mentioned, the parts of every gentleman do stand up at attention. The landlord's daughter. Oh, nothing can delight so as the part that lies between her left toe and her right toe. The landlord's daughter. So most of the residents here are named after trees, flowers, and plants, natural things. Rowan, alder, myrtle, willow. So everyone's having a good old time. Sergeant Howie is getting annoyed. The alder says just to let them have their fun, maybe just have a drink. But no, this man grabs something and starts banging it on the countertop to get everybody to be quiet in the middle of this song. Everybody's having a good time. He don't want this a good time, right? And then he goes into this... I will have you know that I am here on official business shit that he been doing all damn day. He pulls out this photo, has everybody pass it around. Once again, nobody knows this girl. Meanwhile, there's all these pictures from each year's harvest festival on the wall. But there's one missing from last year. What happened to it? Alder says, it got broke. It got broke, y'all. But dinner's ready. So he goes to eat. And when Willow comes back to check on Howie after a while, she notices that he hasn't eaten much. And he says that the food is clearly all canned. She asks what he'd like for afters. That's dessert. And he says he'd like an apple. No apples. He's taken aback. He says the island is famous for its fruits and vegetables. But Willow says they all got exported. So they have the canned stuff. Now, there's an interesting thought that I have about this apple thing, you know, the Garden of uh, Eden, when they eat from the apple from the Tree of Knowledge and they gain all of this knowledge. And the fact that the sergeant who's coming to investigate here um, asks for an apple and they won't give him an apple, it feels like, oh, we're not going to give you the knowledge that you're looking for. We're not going to give you the information that you seek. I think that's kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if that's what they were trying to do there, but I kept thinking that when I was watching the scene. So later that evening, after he finishes dinner, the officer goes for a walk and is met in a field with six or seven couples kind of just having sex on the lawn, just having a great time. And everybody's like mostly clothed except for like a stray boob popping out here and there. And it's shot really dark, so you can't see much. And they have these weird freeze frame moments that seem strange that don't happen at any other point in the movie. So even though it's like sex, it doesn't feel sexy. It just feels kind of weird. But, you know, it's like their thing, so whatever. Um, and anyway, the sergeant keeps walking, and he stumbles into like a grave site where there's a naked girl, completely 100% all the way naked, no panties, no bra, no nothing, just sitting on a grave crying just crying on her head. She's leaning on tombstone, crying, sitting completely 100% naked. So that happens. Um, I was trying to like interpret that. And I guess, you know, 
this movie does focus a lot on religion and I feel like maybe because the the Christian religion is sort of stifled and we're encouraged to sort of like keep our emotions at bay, um, cry quietly, suffer quietly. And this woman sort of like openly weeping naked on a grave is like sort of the most open display of emotion that you could probably have. And it probably makes the sergeant who is deeply, deeply religious um, or uncomfortable. We'll talk about how religious he is um, in just a moment. (laughs) This is all deeply upsetting for the sergeant, all this stuff he's seen. So he busts back into the bar and pushes people out of the way, like really aggressively to get back to Alder and get his room key. Because they never really walked him up to his room because they started singing the song. But he's not ruining anybody's fun. So they just keep partying downstairs, keep singing, having a good time. He's upstairs kind of taking some notes, I guess, for his investigation. Then he kneels bedside to say his prayers. And he's basically fantasizing about taking part in Holy Communion and saying the communion rites, the take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me, um, that whole thing. Everything in his, like, that we're looking at the during the movie, the camera is sort of like dull set, you know, it's dark, shadowed, everything sort of has like a green blue wash over it sort of like it's all cloudy and this little dream sequence he has looks so bright and vivid beautiful colors um you can tell that he is deeply pious and religious um so from here some string instruments begin to play as he's finishing up his prayer Howie crawls into bed trying to sleep and he's interrupted though by willow seductively singing and rhythmically knocking on the wall that she and Howie share to the tune of the string instruments that are playing in the background. And she begins to sing a song through the wall. And I'm not gonna sing the song, but I will read you the lyrics. Hi ho, who is there? No one but me, my dear. Please come say, how do? things I'll give to you. By stroke as gentle as a feather, I'll catch a rainbow from the sky and tie the ends together. Hi-ho, I am here. Am I not young and fair? Please come say, how do, the things I'll show to you. Would you have a wondrous sight, the midday sun at midnight, fair maid, white and red, comb you smooth and stroke your head. How a maid can milk a bull and every stroke a bucketful. Now, Britt Eklund, who is uh, the woman who played Willow, is not the person you're seeing throughout the whole scene. Uh, They pretty much shot her from the chest up because she's fully naked throughout this whole scene, even throughout the dancing and banging on the wall. Um, And they have some full body shots of her from behind. Um, But but Britt was actually pregnant during the filming of this movie. Um, Her voice was that of Annie Ross her singing voice, and her nude body double was Lorraine Peters, who was actually also the woman who was seen crying on the grave earlier in the film. And at one point, as she's dancing, she throws her head back, and you can clearly see that it's not like Willow's actual face. Um, But for the most part, they do a good job at editing. 
So she's dancing around, banging on random things, slapping against the wall and slapping against her body so you can hear the flesh tone of her body being slapped in time with the music. And meanwhile, the sergeant is having a sweating fit, pressing his whole body against the wall and caressing the wall, almost grinding against the wall. And after some very pained, sad grunts, he crawls over and collapses onto the bed, presumably spent. I don't know if he had like a little thing happen down there or nothing, but he sure did seem mad tired when he climbed in the bed and fell right asleep. Next morning, she comes in to wake him up and tells him that it's past nine o'clock. She also mentions that she thought that he was going to come by the prior night to her room, right? But he confessed that he is engaged and he does not believe in sex before marriage. So she tells him that like, he better go ahead and leave before May Day because it's probably not going to be his jam. There's a lot of stuff going on that I'm pretty sure he, you are not going to agree with, boo-boo. So Howie goes out to do some little research and finds a male instructor leading a song with the boys while they swing around the maypole. Um, and I'm going to read the lyrics of the song as well. Now, all of these songs, as I said, were written by Paul Giovanni. In the woods there grew a tree, and a fine, fine tree was he. And on that tree there was a limb, and on that limb there was a branch, and on that branch there was a nest, and in that nest there was an egg, and in that egg there was a bird, and on that from that bird a feather came, and on that feather was a bird. And on that bed there was a girl, and on that girl there was a man, and from that man there was a seed, and from that seed there was a boy, from that boy there was a man, and for that man there was a grave, and from that grave there grew a tree. And somewhere else, somewhere else, somewhere else, somewhere else, somewhere else. <laughs> I have to sing that one because, and then it kind of just goes back. And on that bed, there was a girl. And on that girl, there was a man. And, from, and then just kind of sings. So it's, so, and he's kind of like dancing around and doing little moves. And the boys are swinging around the maypole. Um, and so, but the song is clearly about, you know, fornication. And so, of course, the sergeant is not into that. So he walks over to the classroom window. And the girls are all inside clapping in time to the music outside. Finally, their teacher, Miss Rose, tells them to settle down. She asks a girl, Daisy, what the maypole represents. Daisy does not know, but the other girls are anxious to answer. It's the phallic symbol, because the penis symbolizes the generative vo force in nature. So, uh, Buddy Sergeant comes in and asks to speak to her outside, and basically tells her that the island is full of degenerates, and it clearly starts from what they're being taught in the classroom, and he's intending to report her. She says she ain't know the police had governance of education. Because they don't. Boo. But, of course, Neil Howie has to come in and disrupt the class to ask what his child Rowan is, shows the picture like always. Of course, no one knows like always. And there's an empty desk in the classroom. Howie asks who it belongs to, but Miss Rose says no one. He goes over to it and finds this beetle tied to a string going around a nail. And the kids kind of take joy in it, but the sergeant treats the girl who did it basically like she's sick. 
Now, he asks to see the class roster. Ms. Rose tells him that he's going to need a warrant to do that, but he kind of just pushes her over to the side, takes it out of her desk, and ends up finding Rowan's name in the roster. He calls all the children despicable liars and tells Miss Rose that she's the biggest liar of them all. He says he's if she keeps lying like this, he's going to charge her with obstruction. So now she has to speak to him outside. So she explains to him that they don't use the word. Okay, I just tried to mouth words to you at a, on a podcast where you can't see me. And I feel like an idiot, but they don't use the word dead. And technically, Rowan isn't there or anywhere because her soul has returned to life forces in other forms. Trees, ground, the air. Um, her body, though, is on the ground that used to be called a church, but they only teach Christianity for comparative purposes. They don't practice it. So technically it's not a church ground, but that's where she supposedly is. So he goes to the ground where Miss Rose says her body is and finds a rundown former church. He is disgusted. And at what used to be an altar, he slaps some boxes away. And this woman is sitting sweetly with her baby, like holding her baby, but also like holding an egg in another hand. Um, I guess that's sort of like a thing that they do. But of course, he scares them because he knocks these boxes off. And he slapped these boxes away so that he could take two sticks and fashion them together into like a makeshift cross. And these people have told this man repeatedly that they are not Christian. And he is so hell-bent on making this happen. He finds a gardener and asks about all the trees grown over the graves. Each grave grows one tree. And he points off at one in the corner and asks what kinds of tree it is. It's a rowan tree. And who's buried there? Well, Rowan Morrison, of course, for about six or seven months. And her umbilical cord is hanging there, like tinsel on the tree. And then Howie asks, where's the minister? And the gardener just laughs in his face because he's still not getting it. So the sergeant goes to visit Mae Morrison again, where she's treating her daughter's sore throat by making her hold a small toad in her mouth for five seconds. He thinks all these people crazy. So now he goes to the births and deaths office to see if he can find a death certificate for Rowan. The librarian asks if he has any authority and he pulls out his police badge like, finally, somebody asked me. But she's like, no, no, no. Do you have authority from the Lordship of the Island? I'm going to need that from you. So of course, Howie's like, no. And if you don't help me out, I'm going to have you in jail on the mainland by tonight if I don't get what I want. So she obliges, gives him the book of records. Rowan is not there. So um, he asks if, he, if she knows who Rowan is. She definitely knows who Rowan is. But how did she die? I don't, I don't know nothing about her. I, yeah, I know her. I don't, I don't know, though. No, Sorry. So now, Howie goes to see the town photographer. He takes all the pictures of the Harvest Festival. So he has to have a copy of that one missing photo from the Harvest Festival. No, he don't make copies. Mm -mm. And it's hard to say if the girl that he has in his picture is the girl from the festival. He can't remember. The sergeant is like, come on, it can't be that hard. It was eight months ago. You don't know who this girl is? And dude is just like, I, I, I don't know what you want me to say. So he dips. So he goes to ride this Lord Summer Isle's residence, 
and he ends up riding past the ritual. These women are naked, dancing around a bonfire, jumping over the bonfire as a sort of fertility dance, singing about making the baby grow, making a baby strong. And as he arrives, he's told that the Lord was expecting him, even though he never announced his arrival or asked to come. He heads over to the window while he waits, and his eyes settle back in on the naked women jumping around the fire. And he's startled by Lord Sumrile, who says, he, basically, you must like the view. And the sergeant says, in fact, he does not like the view. His main order of business, he needs his lordship to approve exhumation of the body of Rowan Morrison to investigate foul play. Lord Sumrile, happy to oblige. He's sure there is no foul play. They are deeply religious people and they don't commit murder. Okay, so now Neil Howie is mad. Religious, religious. Y'all don't got no churches. Y'all don't got no ministers. Y'all don't got no priests. And y'all got girls jumping over bonfires naked, trying to do fertility um, uh, rituals. Well, duh, because it's dangerous to jump over bonfires with clothes on, of course. And so he's like, your people actually believe this? That if they pray to a God, um, they're just going to get pregnant by this guy without having to lay down. And Buddy's like, um, yeah, don't you worship uh, Jesus who was uh, formed by immaculate conception from a God who got a virgin pregnant? Ain't that crazy? So then he says one of my favorite lines, sit down, Sergeant. Shocks are so much better absorbed with the knees bent. I'm going to take that. I need to use that. I need to use it in meetings. I don't know. Business dealings. That feels like a good sentence to me. So he's explaining that these women are praying to the God of fire to make them fruitful. And it's important that the new generation of this island understand that the old gods are not dead. But what of the one true God? He's dead. He can't complain. He had his chance, and in modern parlance, he blew it. You see, this island, as well as the adjacent islands, were practically barren until 1868, when Lord Summer Isle's grandfather came, a free thinker, and established a new way. And he walks the sergeant through a beautiful garden with palm trees, lush grass, beautiful flowers, explaining that his grandfather was a smart man who realized what fruits would grow best there. And then, instead of scaring the inhabitants and forcing them to work, he would feed them, clothe them, give them housing, housing, and let them worship their old gods. And the fruit grew. And y'all, let me tell y'all, this garden that he has looks like Xanadu. Like, the flowers are so lush, different colors, plenty. It looks like a literal oasis in the middle of Scotland. So Howie stops him mid-sentence and says, he brought you up to be a pagan. Lord Sumrile says, heathen, I suppose, but not, I hope, an unenlightened one. He is cool as a cucumber, y'all. However, Howie needs to remind him that he's part of a Christian country. But anyway, he has permission to exhume the body, so whatever. Go home, Howie. So we dig up the grave. Open her up. It's a hare. A dead hare. Like a rabbit. So the grave digger is dying laughing. 
The sergeant takes his ass back to his lordship's house where he's chilling with Miss Rose now. Buddy come in and throw the dead rabbit at him on the floor. Mad. They chilling. They say Rowan love March hairs, and it's only sacrilege on consecrated Christian ground to find a hare in her gravesite. And she has just turned into a hare. It's not a big deal to them. So Howie yells at Lord Sumrile to tell him where Rowan is. And his lordship says, I think you're supposed to be the detective here. Howie says he thinks that she's been murdered on some pagan type beat, and he intends to head back to the mainland tomorrow to report the, his suspicions and get a full inquiry done on the island. You know who doesn't care? Anybody else? Like nobody. They're just happy that he's leaving before May Day so he doesn't have to see their heathen behavior and basically ruin their whole um, their whole day, their whole holiday, because he's trash. So now Howie breaks into the photography studio to find the Harvest Day photos. And after some searching, he finally finds the negative and sees her harvest photo. The crops failed. That's why they're eating all canned stuff. That's why the picture isn't hung. There are empty boxes around her. Their harvest did not produce. Now the next morning he goes to research the May Day Festival. Here... He finds out that during good years of harvest, they gift the gods with some of the harvest in reverence. But if the harvest was not plentiful, they would make a human sacrifice, a virgin. So he's convinced now that Rowan must be alive. So he's heading back to the mainland. The boatman takes him out to his little airplane boat. And meanwhile, people wearing these animal masks pop up from the trees to watch him leave. The boatman can't even get to shore before Howie's like, come back here. Immediately starts blaming old dude, playing people on the island because his plane won't go. And starts hollering about how this is going to be obstruction if he finds out anybody is to blame for this. Well, he can't go nowhere. So now he's like, you know what? I'm going to just have to find Rowan by myself. Heads back to land, starts creeping after one of the guys in a Mayday Festival costume. This guy who's wearing a horse costume. He follows him back to the Mayday Festival grounds where he peeks inside to see what's happening. And here, Lord Summer Isle announces their parade route, ending at the beach where they will make a holy sacrifice to Nuada, the sun god, and Elevenal, the Avelinal, the goddess of the orchards. I said that wrong. Avelinal. Howie goes back to Mae Morrison at the post office to advise her that Rowan is not dead. She tells him that he should just go back to the mainland and just let it be. Stop meddling in their business. And he tells her that he is going to search every house. And if anybody, even her, tries to stop him, he's going to have them arrested. And Mae looks at him and says, you will never understand the true nature of sacrifice. He's mad. Just barging into houses, pushing people out of the way, searching, no warrant, no nothing. And on the happiest, one of the happiest days on the island, May Day, the kids are have on their masks and they're giggling. And he's asking children to take off their masks just so he can see their face. This is basically Christmas for them. And he's busting in and knocking down their Christmas tree. He barges in on a woman in the bath. But she, I mean, she didn't look like she minded that much. And she looked like she was going to town on herself, you know what I'm saying? But, of course, he freaked out because, you know, he don't like, he can't deal with naked women. He even opened a closet at one point and his child fell out, got blood coming out of her mouth. But she was just pretending to be dead and starts laughing, gets up and runs away because, like, these kids are ruthless. 
after hours of turning the village upside down and finding absolutely nothing, he goes back to the bar and he asks for a glass of whiskey. And Alder's like, "Oh, you ain't find you ain't find her? That's crazy. You've been you've been bothering everybody all day, and you still ain't find her." But Howie is just like, "Whatever. I'm taking this room key. I'm going to bed for a half hour. Don't wake me up." And Alder says, "You know what? You should probably stay there for the whole day because the island does not take well to strangers on May Day." Boo boo. So while he's resting, quote unquote. He can hear Willow and her dad, Alder, talking about using something that might make him sleep for hours or days. They don't know. They just know they don't want him up and around. So Alder sends Willow on ahead, but stays behind to change into his punch costume. Man Fool Punch, the most complex of the characters of the festival. A simpleton and king for a day. Now, Howie opens his eyes to find a burning hand next to him. This is the thing that was supposed to keep him asleep. He knocks it over quickly, but he grabs the candle holder that it was sitting on. He sneaks up on Alder, knocks him, I think, like, he, okay, he knocks him in the back. It's a horrible angle film-wise, but I think he was supposed to have knocked him in the back of the head. And then he sees the punch mask and gets this bright idea. He's going to take the costume and infiltrate the festival. So now he's in the procession, but he's not being fool-like at all. Um, he's just kind of like looking around, and Lord Summer Isle is getting irritated. And he, he's just kind of like walking, not participating. So once Lord Summer Isle gets in his face about it a little bit, he starts to dance, hit the girls with his balloon. He's playing a part, you know? And they get to some relic stones, and six boys form a six-point star with swords. And everyone walks through saying, chop, chop, chop. Or maybe it was like four boys, but they were. It had a six-point star with swords, and the swords are lowered around their neck, then brought back up. And how he tries to stay inside, Lord Summerisle grabs him by the nose and says, "Everybody has to go through." Now he makes it through, but everything stops when someone in a hair costume is beheaded. But it's just Holly pranking everybody. Yay, child! I thought Howie was literally gonna die right then, um, but. Now they process to the beach, and Lord Summer Isle dedicates a barrel of ale to the sea, cuts it open, tosses it. Then, for the land sacrifice, a horn sounds, and a girl presents at the top of the mountain. It's Rowan, and Howie is beside himself. He goes running up the stairs, pushing people out the way, punches the dude that's protecting her, and starts to untie her. She starts frantically squirming, telling him to hurry. She tells him that she knows a way out. She's trying to run through these tunnels, and she leads him through a cave. Three men give them chase. They barely escape out of a hole at the top of the mountain. And upon stepping out, Howie is met by Willow, Miss Rose, Mae Morrison, Lord Summer Isle, and a group of other people. And Rowan has this big smile on her face and runs right over to his lordship and gives him a big hug, asking if she did it right. Oh, you did it beautifully, honey. She runs over to her mother, Mae Morrison, gets a huge hug, hugs her so tight before they finally run off. Howie checks over the cliff to see if he could jump off. The rocks are far and wide. He couldn't jump. Welcome, fool. You have come on your own free will to the appointed place. The game is over. What game? Well, we persuaded you to think that Rowan Morrison was being held as a sacrifice because our crops failed last year. And they did fail. But secretly, 
They didn't want a child. They were looking for the right kind of adult, a man who would come of his own free will, that has come with the power of a king representing the law, that has come as a virgin and a fool. Howie says that he is Christian and he believes in resurrection. And even if they kill him, he is the one who will come again. Not the apples, not the fruit. But they wash him, massage him with their hair, sing to him, and cover him with a white robe. As a last protest, he says, I believe in the life eternal as promised to us by our Lord, Jesus Christ. That is good for believing what you do. We confer upon you a rare gift these days, a martyr's death. Come, it is time to keep your appointment to the wicker man. He tries to protest, uh, of course, and tries to explain that the crops failed because the island isn't meant for those crops. He tries to explain that if they do fail next year, they'll have to commit another murder because this is murder and no one less than Lord Samarile will do. His lordship, though, insists that the crops will not fail. This will solve their problem. He will solve their problem. They lead him up the mountain, and as Sergeant Howie's instrument of death comes into view, he begins to scream and plead. A tall man-like form made of wicker stands at the top of the mountain, about 25 feet tall with a door on the front. Stairs lead up to the door. There's already livestock loaded into it. He's picked up and carried up the stairs, thrown inside the structure and quickly locked in. Sergeant Howie looks at the sunset in terror as Lord Summer Isle prays to the gods one last time. Hear ye words of the Lord, awake ye heathens and hold. It is the Lord who laid waste to your orchards. It is he who hath made them bare, because the truth is withered away from the sons of men. Desire shall fail, and ye shall all die accursed. Howie is unhinged. Fun fact, there's a goat above him. And while they were filming this scene and the goat was chained up, he did not like being chained up. So um, he peed on your boy. So he got peed on by a goat, unfortunately. So now music begins to play and Sergeant Howie watches and listens as the Islanders sing and dance joyfully as they light the wicker man and the fire grows around him. Summer is coming in, louder sing cuckoo, groweth seed and bloweth mead and springeth the wood new. Howie starts to sing the Lord's Prayer, trying to drown them out. And then finally resigning to his fate, he says, I humbly entreat you for the soul of this, thy servant, Neil Howie, who will today depart from this world. Do not deliver me into the enemy's hands or put me out of mind forever. Let me not undergo the real pains of hell, dear God, because I die unshriven. And establish me in that bliss which knows no ending through Christ our Lord. Then, as he burns alive, he simply screams, Daniel, Daniel, repeatedly until his screams end. The islanders continue to sing until the wicker man finally topples over and the credits roll in front of a flaming red sunset. 
So I definitely don't want to drone on too much about themes. I'm sure you understand the hypocrisy of Howie trying to force his religious beliefs into a situation where it was not required at all. One need not be of any religion to do a specific job, and the beliefs of these people should have been completely separate from his investigation. But what I'd like to talk about now, okay, I don't know if it has a name. If you happen to be listening and know if there's a name for the thing that I'm talking about, please write me, DM me, let me know. But I call it anti-protagonist indoctrination. Um, it ha- has happened in a couple of movies. More currently, it happened in movies like Midsommar or even like Fight Club. Um, so basically, when you begin the movie, we any movie, we unknowingly ask ourselves, okay, so who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? And we try to form that opinion as early as possible. Much like in real life, familiarity of race, religion, ideals, or even certain uniforms will try to guide our judgment on who to trust. Okay, these are the Americans in the film. These are the Christians in the film. These are the detectives in the film. These are the women in the film. So that's who I should be rooting for because that's who you associate with. And in this case, we're presented with a police sergeant on the search for a missing girl. Surely we want him to succeed, right? You remember our Psycho episode? And we talked about um, the detective who was searching. And we knew that the detective was right. We knew that someone was missing. Someone was dead. But because of how he approached uh, Norman Bates, how he approached the situation, and because of our feelings for Norman Bates at that point, we were kind of forced on the side of not wanting the police officer to get what they want, right? In our first scene here, Howie announces his uniform as a reason for the Islanders to comply with everything he says. He doesn't even really say who he is, why he's there before he says, I'm in a police uniform, as you can see. It's one of the first things that he points out as if he doesn't really need a real reason to do anything. His uniform will speak for itself and give him full um, access to anything that he wants. This becomes a theme in this film, how he repeatedly uses his position, his badge, his uniform as a means to do and say whatever he wants, no matter how disrespectful he may be. Meanwhile, the Islanders, while having different beliefs from him and ultimately us, they still seem fun, kind, happy. We then begin to recognize that he, and ultimately we, are disrupting their society and their happiness with our rigid beliefs. So we fall in line with the majority. We start to see things from their perspective and we start to get annoyed for them. This officer comes in with nothing but a photo and an anonymous letter. And instead of trying to understand them and their practices as a means to gather information about what may have happened, he insulted this whole island's way of life. So we secretly hope that his search doesn't go anywhere. Even though it's apparent that everyone is covering something up, we're a part of this island now. So we're a part of the cover-up now. Whatever they doing, we doing too. And we want that secret to stay protected. When he finds out that Rowan may still be alive, we should be relieved In any typical police or detective drama, 
this would be a race to beat the clock. And we would be rooting for these guys bursting into random houses, bursting into random uh, places to catch these bad guys. This doesn't feel like that. We just really want him to leave these poor people alone to enjoy their May Day in peace. And he has so many chances to leave them alone. But when we find out that every choice that he's made has led him to the top of this mountain of his own volition, and we find out that not only is Rowan actually safe, but Howie also has to answer for his piss poor attitude, we feel a short moment of satisfaction. But here's where it gets interesting for me, though. When Howie starts to explain that if the crops don't harvest this year, they'll take Lord Summerisle as their next sacrifice, he actually begins to make sense for a moment. And seeing Lord Summer Isle's insistence that the crops will not fail, their gods will not fail, starts to feel a little gross. And as we see the towering wicker man and realize what is due to happen to Howie, we feel the same terror that he does. And for a moment, we wonder if he'll be saved. Is the cavalry coming? But even in his last moments, Howie clings to his hypocrisy, trying to drown the islanders out with his own religion. But the islanders revel in his screams, dancing and smiling in hopes that those screams will replenish their harvest for the next year. As the sun sets, we're left with a weird feeling, wondering if we made the right choice. Like in the grand scheme of things, we know we wouldn't have died, right? Like this is all his fault, yeah? I mean, yes, a girl was supposedly missing, and he was doing his job and doing his best to find her. But not like this, Howie. Not with that piss-poor personality. So we're fortunate to be released from the cult by the time the movie ends, but we feel a bit unsure. The best films, I think, leave us feeling a bit unsure. Because that's life. A lot of being unsure of who the good guys are and the bad guys. Sometimes we don't know until it's way too late that we were on the wrong side or if there was ever even a right side. Y'all, please watch this movie, especially if you saw the Nicolas Cage version. This one deserves your time. If you took the time to watch the 2006 version of this movie, this one deserves your time. I had to rent it. But there may be some smaller streaming programs that have it, um, but I just don't have any of them, and I didn't really have time to go looking to see. But the movie is brilliantly made. Basically, no gore at all, but still somehow like creepy and ultimately has one of the most terrifying endings in horror history. The Daniel screams will stay with you. One more fun fact. You actually used to be able to visit the burned stumps of the burned wicker man until 2006 when someone came and stole them. Well, next week, I'm not sure what I'll be doing, but I need a good laugh with all the crying I've been doing, so it'll be a comedy for sure. Please follow the podcast on whatever platform you use and check out the Halef Pod Instagram. Um, I really haven't updated the website in a few weeks, to be honest, but I will hop on that. So you can also check out uh, here'slookingpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at film underscore Nikki. 
and also send any collab requests, advice, movie recommendations, or general greetings and well wishes to hereislookingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. And if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. We miss you, Peter. Cheers.